Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, again, this is one of those passages. Lots of people uh, don't think that uh, Revelation is very practical to us today. They think it's all about the future. And as we've talked about many times throughout this series, uh, Revelation is about the future, but it's also about the present. Okay? Revelation does prophesy to us things that specifically will come true in all of the details in the future, in the days just before Jesus returns. But it isn't just about that. And we know that because that's what uh, John says at the beginning of the book. And he repeats it a couple of times. But this book of Revelation is not just supposed to be about the future. It is about the future, but it's also about right now. It's a pastoral book. So everything in Revelation has to be, apply, be able to apply to us and encourage us today. It's actually not meant to be a scary book. It's the opposite. It's funny how in the West now, we take it as a scary book. And when John wrote it, he wrote it to be an encouragement to Christians living in the Roman province of Asia 2,000 years ago. So everything in the book of Revelation, if we're walking with Jesus and we're, uh, we're reading this the way it was meant to be written, every passage is meant to apply to us and to encourage us, even though there certainly are some warnings there that we need to be aware of. The book of Revelation is not meant to terrify us. It is meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to apply to all of us. So what are we going to do again? Here's one of that. that we've, there's two passages in the book, and we talked about these 144,000 back in chapter 7. And again, this is like, to a lot of people, it's just weird stuff. What do I even do with this? When I'm reading about this, 144,000, like, how does, you know, 144,000 Jewish men living in the future, how does that affect me uh, today? And, uh, and the answer is, if we look at the, at the, uh, at the context of this, you're going to see, again, uh, yes, you know, a group of 144,000 Jewish men, something going on uh, in the future. And I mean, when it comes to the 144,000, it's, it's difficult sometimes to separate symbolism from, from what is physically going to happen. But certainly there is something for us yet today. And if we look at the context of the passage, we're going to find an encouragement in this 144,000. So if we look back at chapter 13, if we remember, that's where we were one month ago, the last time I preached. And chapter 13 is all about the mark of the beast. And we talked about that there a month ago. I'm just going to read you a couple of verses. And then you're going to see how the 144,000 is all part of that passage. It's meant to be encouragement. It's not a different subject. So we re- read this in chapter 13 about all, Satan, the Antichrist, wanting to mark uh, all of his followers. Verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Also, it causes all, I want you to notice that all, does not mean every single person on the earth because there's people who don't worship the beast. There's believers, there's saints. What it means there is, uh, first of all, it means a lot. You know, a huge number across the whole earth are going to take this mark, okay? And it also refers to the fact that it's all of the beast's followers, okay? So the beast wants to mark his followers. Now, again, we saw a month ago, this isn't just about something in the future. We see this happening already now in our society where, and, and in different countries around the world where there is pressure on Christians to compromise. Sign this in order to get that. Sign this or, or, or agree with this in order to get that benefit. All that sort of stuff. It's all the same thing. Just it's going to get worse. Okay? 
but he wants all of his followers to be marked. Now, that's important because, again, you're going to see that with 144,000. Both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast, the number of its name. Now, again, remember, I keep telling you this. Uh, there's no chapters or uh, chapter breaks in the original. And now I've had some people come to me and they say, uh, like, are the chapter breaks bad? Like, can you recommend to me a Bible that doesn't have the chapter breaks? It's not that the chapter breaks are bad. I like, I wouldn't actually want a Bible that didn't have the chapters and verses because I wouldn't be able to find anything. So they're helpful to find something. I just keep reminding you of the fact that there was no chapter breaks in the original because when you're reading it, the chapters and verses are helpful for finding things, but when you're reading it, if you divide them into chapters, it looks like it's a new subject. So that's what we do with this 144,000 in chapter 14 often is we, we, read, we get to the end of chapter 13, that's about the mark of the beast, and we think, okay, that was about the mark of the beast, now we're on to a new subject. And when we do that, we lose the context for chapter 14, which then means we don't know why is he talking about these 144,000. But what you're going to see is chapter 13 is about Satan marks his followers. And what is chapter 14? God marks his followers. What's the very next verse? Okay. First verse of chapter 14. He's just continuing on the same topic. And he says this, then I looked and behold on Mount Zion, stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, again, uh, there, you know, quite likely, you know, uh, and I don't know exactly because again, there's lots of sim symbolism with these 144,000, but yes, sure. There's a group of 144,000 men, Jewish men at the end. And this refers to that group, but I want you to notice here, this has to have bigger application to all of us starting 2000 years ago with the Christians reading this in the Roman province of Asia. And what we've just seen is that Satan wants all of his followers marked. Now, does it make any sense to you that God would only mark 100? So Satan wants to mark all of his uh, followers, and then God only marks 144,000 of his in the future. And the answer is no. There's a bigger application here. Even if the 144,000 is a specific group of people in the future, this is a bigger thing here. God also seals his people. God also seals his people. Satan wants to mark his. God also seals those who are his. And that's why when we read chapter 13, we should continue reading and read chapter 14 together. And I think the big thing here is that as Christians, we're not meant to fear the mark of the beast. We're meant to be encouraged that we are marked for Christ. See, there's Revelation 14.1. It's written on their foreheads. God marks, Satan marks. The point is not to be afraid of Satan marking us. The point is to be encouraged that God marks us. Now, it, it, I always think of the analogy. I think there's too many Christians. And I went through this in my life for a number of years. But I think, I feel like there's too many Christians who are afraid all the time about their position with Jesus. And I feel like there's too many Christians who are afraid. And I went through a whole phase like this. I've shared that testimony with you when I was younger. And I was scared every day as a kid. Does, you know, am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved? What if I go to hell? 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 Always questioning this. And then I would get saved every night in bed. Lord Jesus, if I wasn't saved last night, could you save me tonight? And, and you know, on the one hand, he might have found that a little bit cute. But on the other hand, any of you who's a parent, would you think that was good if your children woke up every morning wondering whether or not they were still your kids today? Would that be a healthy thing? And the answer is no. I got four kids and 
I want them to know it wouldn't matter what would happen. In fact, I've told them this. I've told them, you know, you could be in a horrible accident that hideously disfigures you. You'll, I'll still love you just the same, okay? Now, maybe I shouldn't talk to them about that. <laughs> but it doesn't, like, if you're a parent, does it matter how your kid looks today? I mean, well, I mean, there's certain things you don't want them going to the house looking like that. But it has nothing to do with how much you love them. It has to do with whether you're embarrassed to be their parent or not, right? But, but, but it has nothing to do, they're your kid, my kids are my kids, regardless of what happens to them. Regardless, I mean, my levels of annoyance with them can go up and down, but my levels of love, always I love them. Always, always, always I love them because of my kid. Now, here's the thing with God. I wish, well, don't you wish he would just put a physical symbol on you and you could just see it like 777 right across your forehead. And every morning you look in the morning, yes, I'm still God's kid today. And if you're starting to get too worldly, it starts to fade, and it's like, oh, I better, you know. No, that probably wouldn't be good. But, you know, I w you wish it was a physical mark sometimes, but the fact of the matter is, remark, my kids don't have a physical mark. They don't have a, but they are marked. Their last name is Dirksen. They're mine, right? There's a birth certificate, which they don't carry around with them because heaven knows those things wouldn't last then, but they have a birth certificate that says, Father, Christopher Charles Dirksen. They're mine, they can't physically see it, but they are marked and they are mine. And if they got up every morning anxious as to whether or not I still love them, I would seek to get them help because it is important that they actually receive that truth that they belong to me and I am not going to let them go. But do you, you look at this written on their foreheads. If you believe that Jesus is God, and you have given your life to him in a sense that, no, none of us is perfect, but you've said, I want to follow you, and you, just, and you believe in him, then you are marked. Whether you can physically see it or not, you're marked. And you are not meant. When you read Revelation 13, you are not meant to go, oh, no, the mark of the beast, what if someone forces me to take it? What if, no, no, no. Because if you just read the next verse, you are marked. Satan's are marked, but God's are marked. And you're not meant to get up every morning and wonder, am I going to hell? Am I going to hell? Am I Jesus' kid? Am I Jesus' kid? That's not how you're meant to live. You are sealed for God. Now, there's lots more I want to say in this message. But before we do, we're going to have a middle of the prayer or middle of the message prayer. So don't, I don't want you all to leave and like, oh, that was a really cool, quick message. Would not be possible for me to preach that short. I'm sorry. You can go to Tim's church and see if he preaches shorter, okay? <laughs> but I want us just to pray because I know there will be people here today. And this truth that you are marked as God's child needs to sink deeper into your heart. You are not meant to be afraid of Satan. You are meant to be overjoyed at being marked by God. So would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And let's ask Jesus. You say, what do I do if I can't feel like I'm marked? You know what? You keep praying and grabbing hold of this truth. And you need to hear Jesus right now saying to you, saying your name, saying, child, you are mine. Child, you are mine. Stop comparing yourself to other people. 
Stop comparing yourself to other people. Oh, they're more spiritual than I am, or they're more this, or I'm not good enough, and all that sort of stuff. I wouldn't want my kids thinking things that way. Jesus doesn't want you thinking that way. If you believe in Jesus, you are marked. Child, you are mine. You know, it says in Romans chapter 10, this is God's word. Romans chapter 10 says, where is it? There it is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You're marked. Now, there will come times in your life when you get to make choices. And you get to make choices that because you're on this team, I'm going to continue to choose to be on this team. And that's what chapter 13 is about. Chapter 13 is a warning. Do not take the mark of the beast. You can't be on Satan's team and God's team at the same time. But the point isn't to cause you to be afraid. The point is just it's a warning. You're marked by Jesus. So someone marked by Jesus doesn't go now and get a mark of Satan. You can't play both sides. So once you've chosen, you just, there come moments like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Then they had chosen God, and then they had moments in their life where they had to rechoose. And one of those moments was Nebuchadnezzar came and said, you're all going to bow down to this statue. And they said, actually, no, we've already chosen the God of Israel, and we refused to bow this, this, this statue. So there will be moments. And Daniel, same thing. There'll be moments in your life where you'll get to choose again to reaffirm, no, I'm on this side. And that's what Revelation is warning about, not to make you terrified, but you should be encouraged. You're marked for Jesus. So when those moments in life come, and if they come here in this country, then whether your life or career or name or whatever is on the line, choose as one who is marked by Jesus, choose his side again. Amen? Well, we keep going here in Revelation 14, verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And now we get to the very interesting part. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. And it's like, wow, what is that all about, right? It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. Now, I have to stop here for just a moment because lots of people read verses like this in the Bible and they say, look, the Bible is chauvinist, male, sexism, like this, that line there, they have not defiled themselves with women, certainly seems to say a couple of things. It seems to say that women are less than men. It seems to say certainly that marriage and sex, to be married, to, to be close to a woman, that is somehow makes a man less spiritual. And there's no question that verses like these have been, have a checkered history in church, church history. Too often the church, especially through the Middle Ages, uh, did teach that, taught that women were below men, that it was, and of course you had the whole priesthood in the Catholic church there for centuries where, and priests were, had to take an oath of celibacy because again, all of this was seen as this is more spiritual. 
okay? And then you see verses like that and you see, okay, see, that's the, what the Bible teaches. And so I just want to show you something here. You never build a theology, a big theology off of one verse in a very symbolic passage like this in, in Revelation. And I want to just, this is, you know, my excuse to jump out in the Bible a little bit and do a little theology. Because when we do this together in a service, it teaches you guys how to approach the Bible properly. And it also shows you some of the main themes of scripture. So we're going to come back to this verse and what that does mean, because it has to mean something. John wrote it down. But certainly when we look at the rest of scripture, we're going to see that scripture does not place women below men and also does not place marriage or sex within marriage as a dirty thing or a less spiritual thing, okay? And I'll show you that as those as major themes in scripture. And we start right in Genesis chapters one and two. Genesis one verse 27 says this, so God created man in his own image, okay? In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now that's, that's right there at the beginning of Genesis, right? The first chapter of the whole Bible. And I want you to notice it is not just Adam, who is made in the image of God, Adam and Eve, male and female, are both the image of God. One is not more the image of God than the other. Male and female are created in the image of God. You know what that means? It means if you ha are looking at a man, you are only seeing part of the image of God reflected. Okay? You actually need women. That means that the qualities that, the good qualities that God has put in men come from God, but just as much, it means the good qualities we see in women equally come from God. And I know that God has revealed himself to us in scripture as a father. So that's important. That's part of the inspired revelation. When I pray, I don't pray mother. I pray father. But too many of people have taken that to mean God is male instead of female, but both male and female are made in his image, which means every nurturing, you know, you know, some of the classical, and I know it's, you know, people, there's all kinds, you know, not every woman is the same, obviously, not every man is the same, and you have all kinds of overlapping things, but kind of some of those more classical woman traits, nurturing and things like that are equally a part of God. All of the mother traits come from him as well, because everything male and female comes from him. That's good. Okay. So yes, we talked to him as father. That's how he's revealed himself to us. But no, that does not mean that female is less the image of God than male. That's super important. And now look what it says in the very next verse. And God blessed them, not just the men. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So obviously marriage and sexuality, male and female, all of this is good. Part, something good was God, God's idea. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now we just skip ahead a couple of verses and look at this. And God saw everything that he had made, male and female, sex and marriage, all of it. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. That is numero one statement in the Bible, first chapter. Anything we go into any other verses, now the rest of the Bible and try to make, you know, females are less than males or or you know, sex within marriage is somehow not spiritual. It's better to be celibate. All of that, you are missing the, a major point of scripture, okay? You're obviously taking that verse out of context. And of course, this, is, this kind of thing is, is, is repeated throughout scripture. I mean, Proverbs 18.22 says this, he who finds a wife, right? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And I could show you many, many, many other scriptures. 
Now, of course, I can already hear the objection. And I hear the objection that comes from outside uh, the church where people say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So you cherry pick a couple of verses, but you miss all that stuff in the Old Testament where these guys are marrying multiple wives and there's this patriarchal male dominant society and women are abused and women are less than and da, 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 da. And, and they look up all these verses in the Bible, okay? Um, and they say, well, how can you say the Bible isn't sexist and the Bible doesn't put women down and less than and all sorts of stuff? And I'll tell you how, because the Bible ex- itself explains why those things are there. When the Bible describes how life was in the Old Testament and how women were treated, it is not descri- it's not saying this is how it should be. It's just describing what actually was. And the Bible itself tells us that that was broken. And we find that where? Genesis chapter 3. It's all in the beginning. Okay? So Genesis 1, God makes male and female. There's no dominance there. There's no hierarchy. Not one is more important than the other. None of that. God saw that it was good. Then in Genesis chapter 3, the, the, you know, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, they disobey. And after that in chapter 3, you get this long thing where God pronounces the curse. All the things that are going to be broken because of sin. Now, none of the things in the curse are how God likes it. This is just how it is because it's been broken. That's the result of sin. Does that make sense? So there's a whole bunch of things. Now, I'm going to read you one of them. I'm not going to read you the whole curse. I'll just read you verse 16. To the woman he said. So now this isn't, this isn't God saying what he liked. This isn't God saying how he created it. This is God saying, now you guys have sinned and there's a consequence. Things have gotten broken. Now look what happens. Verse 16. Okay. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, bearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is not in chapter one. This is not God created the earth and it was very good. And he put males to rule over women. And that's why you have all the patriarchal dom- dominance in the Old Testament. And it just makes sense because that's got how God made it. No, 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 no. Sin broke things. And because it got broken, males started sinning. Females started sinning. And the brokenness of that is God could foresee already is males are going to dominate over females. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. God is not condoning it. It's just describing what he said was going to happen. God does not like it when David has multiple wives. And look at the family problems David had. You don't think, you think that was a good thing? The Bible's saying, hey, do what David did. No. You want to go, you want to go to your grave with, uh, with, you know, a truckload of grief over your family? Then do what David did. Okay? Already by the New Testament, we receive repeated admonitions. Only one wife. Okay? All of that is not condoned by the Bible. It's just a description of how bad things had gotten. And of course, that's why when we get to the Gospels, what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus treating women in ways that his culture was aghast. We see Jesus talking to women and the disciples come back and they're shocked. You know, the woman at the well, but many others too. We see Jesus honoring women. You know, that woman who pours the stuff over his head and everybody's like, get her out of here. Da, da, da. And she's wasting all this money. He says, she'll be talked about forever. We see him speaking of highly of women. We see him being friends with women, Mary and Martha and many others. This is what Jesus does when he comes. And then the apostle Paul, was the apostle Paul do? In all of his letters, we see him repeatedly talking about women who he ministered with. And then Paul taught things like this with regards to marriage and things like that. He says, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 
He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. You're like, oh my goodness, now that's an opening line, right? Teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. You know, legalists who say, you know, in order to be really spiritual, you can't get married. Legalists who say that. Paul says that is a teaching of demons. Wow. And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For now he, he's quoting here from Genesis 1, verse 31. For everything, okay? Very next verse there. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, just a little caveat there because I know, you know, people can swing both ways. So for, you know, for much of, you know, Catholic church history, for sure, there was this, and, and you know, you go back into the early church, even there, a lot of these monks and celibacy was seen as more spiritual. You had to swing over to, in order to be really spiritual, you had to be single. Now, of course, you can have people swing it the other way and go, well, it's more spiritual to be married, okay? But actually, the New Testament has a very developed theology of both marriage and singleness. Both marriage and singleness can be a gift from God, depending on how you use it. Both marriage and singleness can be used for God, and both marriage and singleness can equally give glory to God. It all just depends on the situ- your situation and God's plan for your life. Okay? And let me tell you this right now, just being married isn't spiritual. I know a lot of unspiritual marriages. Okay? Just getting married also won't make you happy. You just have to know some married people to know that, right? Isn't that true? Okay? So married people, give, serve God and serve your spouse and give glory to God through your marriage. And single people, serve God and serve the people around you and give God glory through your singleness. Neither one is less nor more. Okay? Neither one is less nor more. Okay, now, that brings us back to Revelation. So I've just taken you on a quick tour through Scripture to show you that women are not less than men, and sex and marriage are not bad things. So why on earth? If you could put that uh, Revelation chapter uh, 14 back up there, that'd be great. So why on earth would John have this line, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for, these, for, for they are virgins? And it sure makes it seem like, wow. Um, the really spiritual people are men, and particularly they're men who don't defile themselves, defile themselves with women. It seems very negative. Why would he describe it that way? Okay? You all remember, as everything is in the, in the book of Revelation, it's all drawing on things that are in the Old Testament. And one of the things you have to understand is that in the Old Testament, one of the rules they had was when soldiers went to battle, they weren't supposed to have sexual relations while they were encamped for battle, okay? Now, of course, that would apply to single men. They weren't supposed to, but it, it implied, uh, but it also applied to married men, okay? And you, you'll see this in different stories. Uh, you know the story of David and Bathsheba, and then he has Uriah the Hittite come home, and, uh, and then David, because he knows he's done wrong, he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant, so then he tells Uriah the Hittite, he says, now go sleep with your wife because he, he wants to hide what he's done, right? And what does Uriah the Hittite say? He said, far be it from me, Lord, while the men are out in the field for me to sleep with my wife. And he refuses to do it. Why? Because they weren't supposed to do that when they were in battle. And the Bible doesn't tell us all the reasons why. I can imagine some of the reasons 
I mean, some of it is when you go, go into battle. Now, I haven't been in battle, but I can imagine. Uh, I've seen some war movies, <laughs> uh, whatever that does for you. Um, but I can imagine, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're a soldier and you're in a campaign, there's a certain mindset you want. It's not a mindset of leisure and entertainment and that sort of thing. It's a mindset of, of first of all, discipline and sacrifice. There's a certain mindset, like we're risking our lives there's a certain mindset that goes with that. There's a job at hand. We're going to have to give and take life in order to defend our families back home and our countries or whatever. This is what we're going to have to do. So there's a certain mindset that goes with that. So there would be certain things that, in a sense, they would fast from before they went to battle so they could be ready to go into battle. Okay? And that is, I really believe, it fits so much with the, uh, the whole picture of Revelation, which is this spiritual battle between Satan's forces and God's forces. And we see this teaching elsewhere in the New Testament. I'm going to bring it back here to Revelation, but 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, look at what uh, Paul says one of the pictures of the Christian life is. Here's one of the pictures of the Christian life. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. One of the pictures of the Christian life. Now, this isn't the only picture of the Christian life. And anytime you take a picture and make that the only picture of the Christian life, you're going to end up with imbalance. But one of the pictures of the Christian life is that we are actually soldiers of Jesus. And what Paul is saying to Timothy here is, because you're a soldier of Jesus, don't get yourself so busied up with the things of the world that you can no longer serve your commander, who is Jesus. Like a soldier in a battle isn't allowed to get so busy with other things that he can't carry out the commands. His commander's like, hey, you got to do this. And it's like, well, actually, got a few emails I got to get back to. Uh, actually, I've got some uh, social media surfing I got to do. I got this little side business thing on the side. I got to take my wife on a date. When you're in battle, you don't have other things distracting you. You're in battle. The commander says, jump. You say, how high? Right? That's how it works in a battle in an army. Okay? Now, again, there's other pictures of the Christian life, not just soldiers. So, you know, people can take it to this level of like, we're soldiers, so there's no pleasure in the Christian life, and there's no rest, and there's no da 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 No, no. The picture of a soldier is one picture. There's other ones. But certainly there is to be an element in our lives, which is that we are so devoted to Jesus that we make decisions to say no to things. There's actually things out there that are perfectly fine and good that other people do, even other Christians do, that I won't do because, or I won't do as much as I could do or want to do because I actually need to be at Jesus' beck and call. And when he calls, I need to jump because I'm in an army and we've got advanced kingdom. And there are far too many Christians, I think all of us at stages of our lives, who do not have that aspect to their life at all. Where every decision we make is just a decision of what do I want to do? And there are Christians who are watching TV and social media and do all that stuff every single evening. And you say, well, don't be legalist. Don't tell me what I can and cannot do. Well, I won't do that. There isn't anything in the Bible that says you can only watch this much or you can only do this much. But I'm going to tell you, when you're watching TV every single night, are you at Jesus' beck and call? I'm not saying you can't watch a movie. That's where the legalism comes in. We have family movie night every, every week, whatever. And I'm not saying what number it is meant to be. 
But our, if, if part, of the picture life, of, of part of the picture of the Christian life is Jesus is my commander, I am devoted to him, that means actually I'm not completely, you know, gluttony on the things of this world that there's nothing left to give to Jesus. Then we've missed it. And if we go back to Revelation 14, this is the picture. When it says that these, the 144,000 have not defiled themselves with women because they are virgins, it's drawing on a picture from the Old Testament of soldiers in battle. It's not, it's not trying to make a bigger statement about women being less than or da-da-da or, or sex not being allowed or marriage. All of those things, out, out, out. What it's giving us a picture of is people who are devoted to Jesus. And we see that the very next line. What does it say? It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, again, you have to see here, John is not just talking about 144,000 people in the future. He is describing now an ideal saint, a person who has some focus to their life. It's not that they don't rest. It's not that they don't enjoy things, that they don't have any hobbies or anything like that. I really believe, if, if I can just take a step back for just a moment, to cast a bit of a vision of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, my vision of what it is to be a Christian is very much rooted not just in the New Testament, but in Genesis. When God made people, he made us to be people. So to give your life to Christ is to commit yourself to a life of being truly human, what God made people to be in front of the world. He made us. The first thing he said when he, to Adam and Eve was not, I want you to spend all your time praying and fasting. The first thing he said to them was, work the garden. Okay? So what does it mean to be a human being in God's image? It means we work and are productive. It means we make things beautiful and better in this world. So I'm not talking about, you know, a devotion to Jesus that becomes this weird legalistic thing where I'm like a monk who's divorced from real life. No, we should show the world what it means to work filled with the spirit of Jesus. How to work with joy. We should show the world how to be creative with the spirit of Jesus. We should show the world how to truly rest. The world doesn't know how to rest. They know how to take vacations. They know how to binge out on, on movies and social media. And there's nothing wrong with watching uh, uh, some movies and all that sort of stuff. But that's all the world knows how to do to rest. What if we showed the world what it means to really rest, where you actually come back to work after a day off, where you have loved your family and loved Jesus, and you come back actually refreshed and not stressed out? What if we showed the world how to work, how to rest, how to be a family, how to be a neighbor? Like, I think we should be human. I don't think we should spend all our time praying and fasting. We should be fully human. But being fully human does not mean being completely addicted to watching screens all my life. So there's nothing left for Jesus or for others. And these people are devoted. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now look at what it says next. These have been redeemed for mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. Now I want you to see again, John is predicting something in the future. Yes, but again, he is describing what, he, what an ideal saint looks like to him. They are blameless. What does it mean, blameless? Does it mean these people, does it mean the saints are 100% perfect all the time? Absolutely not. John himself is the one who says in 1 John, if anyone says he has no sin, he makes God out to be a liar. 
Okay? Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means anybody here who's not a tiny little baby. I know some pastors go all overboard and even the tiny little babies have sinned. I really don't think so. <laughs> They're just lying there. Um, unless that's a sin. Uh, but, you know, if you're here today and you can understand what I'm saying to you, then you have sinned, okay? All of us have sinned. Romans 3 verse 10 says this, none is righteous, no, not one. So how can John describe these people as blameless, these people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, these people who, who are, they have focus, they have, the fact that they haven't, they're not, you know, this idea of them being virgins, the fact that they're not so addicted to the world that they have no time for Jesus, they are soldiers of Christ, dedicated to doing his will. What does it mean that they're blameless? Well, I want to take you on a quick tour. I wish I could do more, but a quick tour of Scripture to show you what the, how the word blameless is used in Scripture. And it's not used the way that most Christians think of it as being used, which is this theoretical sense of like, I'm blameless because Jesus sees me as blameless because he forgave my sins. Now, that is certainly part of it. That's certainly part of it. Part of it is you've been forgiven. So hallelujah, you're blameless. But I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of Christians who God would not say you're blameless. You're forgiven, but the way you're living right now is not blameless, okay? What does it mean to be blameless according to Scripture, not according to some of our theological systems? Well, let's look at three different people in Scripture who are called blameless, and I could show you other pictures or other people, other examples. Genesis 6, verse 9, that's starting in the beginning. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, first of all, was Noah a perfect person? Nope. Genesis 9 contains a very scandalous story where he gets drunk, ends up naked. We don't need to go there, okay? Ugly, ugly, ugly. He's not a perfect man, but he's blameless. He walks with God, and he's blameless in his generation. Okay? The, I could skip over. There's other examples in the Old Testament. Let's go to the first, and none of you would guess this unless you were here last night. Because I wouldn't have got it. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, maybe some of you would have had it, but... but doesn't mean that none of you could have got it because I didn't get it. But if you would have asked me a week ago, who are the first people, or if there's any people, but who are the first people in the New Testament to be called blameless, I would not have guessed these people. Okay? But John the Baptist's parents are called blameless. First people in the New Testament. Look at this. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, that is a very interesting thing. Again, first of all, does it mean perfect? No, nobody is perfect. I mean, Zechariah is about to have his mouth zipped shut for nine months because he's a doubter. So he's not perfect. Blameless does not mean these are superhuman people. And, and certainly there is an element of, you know, they're followers of God, but Jesus hasn't even died on the cross yet. Um, and I'm going to show you another verse yet in just a moment. There's, a, there's an element of this. They follow God, and yes, so there's a forgiveness aspect, but it's not talking about a theoretical blamelessness. There's something real here. They're not blameless theoretically. It says they walk blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes. In other words, it says they're blameless in the way they obey. It's the way they act. 
Not just some theoretical thing because they've been forgiven. They actually walk somehow blamelessly. What does that mean? And yet not perfect. Let's look at one more. Paul. Okay. Can you imagine writing this about yourself and being inspired by the Holy Spirit so it's actually true? He writes this in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 10. You are witnesses. He's writing this to the church of Thessalonica. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our what? Conduct. He's not talking about a theoretical blamelessness. He's not talking about Jesus sees me as righteous because of his forgiveness. Even though that is a true thing. It is a true thing. Jesus forgives us. Isn't that amazing? So we're not perfect. And he forgives us of our sins. And so we're washed. That is an amazing truth. But what Paul is talking about here is something different. He's, he's saying, yes, Jesus has forgiven me. Amen. But I'm not just blameless in the sense of being forgiven. I have actually behaved towards you in a blameless way. Does that mean Paul never sinned? Absolutely not. Romans 7. I cannot do what I want to do. And I do do, not do do, but I, I end up doing what I don't want to do. Yikes. Right? So he's not sinless, yet he can say to them, after being with them for a couple of years, he can say, I never attempted to seduce anybody's wife. You could trust me with all the tithes. I never once took anything from anyone. By the way, Samuel gives the same speech in the Old Testament. I never once stole anything from you. You could, you could trust me with money. You could trust me with your secrets. You could trust me with anything. I have acted towards you blamelessly. I actually know people. I know a number of people in this church. And there's others that I don't know well enough, but that I personally know. I know people in this church who love God and who I can absolutely, utterly, 100% trust. I can and have, with some of these people, told them the most embarrassing, you know, sins and confessed to them things in my life. And I don't worry for even one second would they ever betray my trust. I know a number of people in this church. I trust them so much. I could give them my bank card, my credit card. I could give them all of my, you know, my PIN number information. I could give them anything. And I would never even worry that even a cent of my money would be misused or taken. I wouldn't even think about it. I know people in this church who love Jesus. If they found a wallet with $1,000 in it, I, it wouldn't even cross their minds they wouldn't even wrestle with it. They wouldn't be like, ooh, it'd be nice to have $1,000. They would not even wrestle with it. Maybe a fleeting thought for half a second, it would be gone. They would only, they wouldn't take even a dollar from that wallet. They would look to return it to its owner. These are people you can absolutely, utterly trust. In the words of scripture, these are blameless people. They love Jesus and they are forgiven. There's that element that they're forgiven. Yes, that's part of being blameless. But there's another element, which is if all you are is theoretically blameless and it hasn't touched how you actually live, what kind of a joke is that? What do unsaved people think when, must think when they see Christians discussing theology the way it's sometimes discussed today, which is, oh, Jesus just sees me as perfect. And meanwhile, these people can see you ripping people off and cheating people and treating people badly. What a joke to them. That's righteousness. It's something you have in theory, but it doesn't touch your actual character. No, 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 no. When you love Jesus, you know what the saints look like? 
Not perfect, not even close. Working on their stuff, you bet. All of us are a work in progress. But when you actually put on the name of Jesus and are marked by Jesus, it actually is supposed to change your actions at work, at home, at play. At work, at home, at play, in every which way that people can look at that person and say, there's something different about these Jesus followers. They are different. They keep their promises. You can handshake deal a Christian. And yeah, maybe in the end, for legal reasons, you've got to get lawyers involved. But the fact that we did a handshake means I can trust it 100%. I don't need to worry about it. Because I know that person will keep their word even when it hurts because they love Jesus. They're blameless. They're blameless. And there's a whole contrast in the book of Revelation. Chapter 13 describes Satan's people and Satan's ways. And chapter 14 describes God's people and God's ways. When you read the 144,000, you're reading what's supposed to be a description of God's people. They're devoted to the lamb. They follow him wherever he goes. And they are blameless. They walk in integrity. They walk in graciousness. They walk in love. They walk in mercy. Verse 6, and then what happens after that? Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So here again, we see this thing. And this is all you're saying. What does this have to do with 144,000? I'll show you in just a moment. Here again, we see this repeated theme throughout Revelation that before Jesus comes back, the Great Commission is going to get completed. Before Jesus comes back, every tribe and ethnic group and language and people on earth is going to hear the gospel. And some from every tribe and language and nation and people is going to get, give their lives to Christ. That will happen before Jesus returns. Now, some might look at this and say, okay, is, is it an angel going around the world finishing the Great Commission? Is it an angel... You know, just before Jesus comes back, is there an angel in the air? He's got a loudspeaker. He's preaching in different languages. Boom, the Great Commission is done. Jesus comes back. I really don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is very important to this message in 144,000. The reason I don't think so is because Jesus did not give the job of the Great Commission to angels. He gave it to people. Matthew 28, he said to the church, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations. God didn't give angels the job of the Great Commission. God gave us the job of the Great Commission. Now, this angel flying all over the earth, I have no doubt that God is supernaturally going to empower us, that he's going to send angelic help and spirit help. And in the end days, more than ever before, he's going to supernaturally empower us. But the job is not given to angels to spread the gospel. The job is given to us. If we don't do it, nobody will. Now, the question is, how... How do we spread the gospel? How do we complete the Great Commission? Well, a big part of that is missions. In this church, we're huge into missions. Huge part of our budget every year goes into missions and the different things we're doing in church renewal and all that. But when it really comes down to the people, how do we spread the good news? And again, I want you to notice the contrast in Revelation with how Satan's side works and how God's side works. Satan's side works through persecution, oppression, fear, and violence. I'm going to mark you, the mark of the beast, and I'm going to scare you into taking the mark of the beast, and I'm going to conquer and 
go to war and all these things. That's how Satan tries to win people to his side. God's people, like the 144,000, do not work that way. I'll tell you how we spread the gospel. Two main things. How we act, and then based on that, what we say. How we act and what we say. Some Christians just want to behave nicely and think that's enough. They want to take out the words. Doesn't work. Other Christians want to talk about Jesus, but they don't want to have the good life that actually makes those words powerful. That also doesn't work. It often makes us a stench to the world. But actually, the way we complete the Great Commission is by being lights in the world, both through the way we live and through what we say. Okay? Our mouths and our actions. I want to share just a, a brief story, and I can't go into all kinds of detail, but then we'll finish. Recently, uh, we were with some people we love dearly. Amazing people. Like, they're actually really wonderful people. And they don't believe in Jesus. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They're not really open to the gospel. So we were with them. So what do you do in that case? Well, you continue to show them love. And you have a relationship with them because they're amazing. We love them anyway. It's not that we're doing it for a reason other than we just love them. But we were together and an opportunity just presented itself. And this is where you have to always be listening to the Holy Spirit. An opportunity came up and the question came up, oh, what did you do today? Now, it just so happened, I love the way God works things out, just so happened, that very day, I had met someone here at the church I'd never met before who just wanted to share their testimony with me. And they had shared this testimony that was incredible. It was amazing. Miracles. Miracles that Jesus had done in their life because they were totally, they were atheists. They didn't believe in God. Jesus did these miracles. And then Jesus opened up their eyes to see how much he loved them. And these people had never experienced God's love before. And, and then how this person's life radically changed. Went from being a wicked, terrible person to being in love with Jesus. Amazing testimony. Well, now in the evening, I'm with these wonderful people who, who don't believe in Jesus. And so they say, what did you do today? And in that moment, I just, the Holy Spirit just reminded me of that testimony. Now, in that moment, you have a choice. You can be quiet or you can try to be a light. So I thought to myself, well, I'm just, funny you should ask. I said, I had a meeting today, heard the most amazing story. You don't use words like testimony in that point, place. I heard the most amazing story. I met this person. I heard the most amazing story. And then I just proceeded to tell the story. Just blatantly telling the story of like some really cool miracles and, you know, whatever and, and love and this person, how this person got saved. You know, towards the end of the story, I could see that they weren't interested in hearing more of this story. And they weren't interested in me going any further. So you know what I did? I just finished the story and then I stopped. I did not take up an altar call. I do not try to start up a debate because we're not rude. We are gracious and gentle and devoted to the lamb. Our leader is a lamb, not a dragon. So we don't act like dragons. We're not supposed to. Okay? They say, well, what happened after that? Well, nothing so far. We keep praying. But this is how we spread the gospel. We love people and we're gentle we're like the 144,000. We're and blameless in our conduct and yet courageous enough and praying 
and looking for opportunities. Maybe this time, maybe this seed will be something. It might be nothing. It might feel like nothing. Maybe five years down the road, though, it becomes something by the Holy Spirit's working. Amen? Too many people nowadays in our culture, I see this, think that the key to reaching people for Jesus is to be the same as them. And by the way, there is a place for being the same. I think of the missionaries in the 19th century, in the 18th century, you know, Hudson Taylor and guys like that, and they would go to China instead of, and the other missionaries would make fun of them because instead of dressing like Englishmen, they would dress like Chinese and wear their hair like Chinese. And they said, well, we've, we've got to minister to them where they're at. That's totally good. Cultural relevance in that sense is a good thing. I know way too many Christians now, though, they think they're going to reach people for Christ by only by being culturally relevant. So you think, if all of my unsaved friends are drinking alcohol, I have to drink as much alcohol as them. Otherwise, I'm not going to be relevant. All of my unsaved friends are watching filthy movies and listening to filthy music. So I have to listen to all of that because I've got to be culturally relevant or they won't accept Jesus. Can I tell you something? Nobody has ever given their life to Jesus because they said, oh, I can keep drinking as much as I do now. Oh, sweet. That's what it means to to accept Jesus into my life is I get to keep being the exact same way I am now. No one's ever gotten saved for that. People don't get saved because you're the same as them. They get saved because you're different. They get saved because you have something that they want. So yeah, there's areas. We don't have to, you know, make ourselves different in weird legalistic ways that have no matter. But We need to be different in the way we act and in our character. And then when we're different in a good way, and then we speak courageously in our light, that's when people get saved. So bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And I want us to just listen for a moment. Lord Jesus, you want us to be a light. It has to change the way we live. We can't be miserable, cheating, lack of integrity, foul-mouthed people and expect your kingdom to be advancing. Lord Jesus, if there is any area of character in our lives that we need to confess to you and begin to change, just one, don't overwhelm us, Jesus. I pray that you would give each one of us a little a nudge. And then, Lord, we lift up all our dear loved ones, family and friends who we love dearly, amazing people who don't believe in you right now, Jesus, and we want them to know you. We're not going to badger them, but we are going to pray for them. And we're going to love them, and we're going to take those little opportunities when we can to be a light, to bring, to plant those seeds that hopefully are going to grow and bear fruit. Help us to be more like you. Open up their hearts to know the joy that we have in knowing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.